This is the last week in the book of Jonah. And I'm not sure about you, but I'm actually a little bit sad that Jonah's coming to a close. I've really enjoyed preaching through it. Uh, and, and what I appreciate in particular is how very human Jonah is. His life is just a mess. And I find it very easy to relate to aspects of his story. I'm sure you guys do too. Uh, but today we come to the last chapter. We come to the end. And it's not an ending uh, tied up with a nice pretty bow. It ends with a question that leaves us in tension. Uh, but this is a question that we're meant to take with us and wrestle with long after the book comes to a close. Uh, I think uh, by way of recap, let's remember where we've been. Uh, Jonah, he was called by God. God called Jonah to leave Israel and head to Nineveh, a brutal and violent and oppressive nation and city that in recent history for Jonah had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Jonah flees in the opposite direction. He gets on a ship to Tarshish, and he heads 2,500 miles away. But in his descent away from God, he found he couldn't flee the presence of the Lord. And so God sends a violent wind upon the ship that Jonah is on. And so Jonah, he convinces the sailors to throw him overboard. But Jonah can't escape God so easily. God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And it's not until Jonah realizes that he can descend no further from God. It's not until Jonah finds himself in the belly of a great fish, in the belly of Sheol, that he finally prays. But he prays perhaps the most narcissistic and myopic prayer in all of the scriptures. There is no sign of confession. There is no remorse. There is no, I'm sorry, God, for running from you. And yet God still answers Jonah's prayer. The whale spits Jonah up on the, on the, the shore, and, and, and God calls Jonah a second time. Because God does not give up on us in our disobedience, and even when we've given up on him. And so Jonah, he finally walks in his calling. He heads to Nineveh. He takes a brief but loaded message to the people. And to our surprise, but not to Jonah's surprise, the entire city repents of its evil and its violence. It's citywide renewal. Now, if the book ended there, that'd be a very nice ending. Good work, Jonah. But ultimately, this isn't a book solely about God's love for cities and his passion to see them renewed. It's not a book that's just about what happened in Nineveh. It's a book about how God uses the people and the place that he calls us to to form our own lives. This book is about God's unrelenting love and grace towards his wayward prophet Jonah. His unrelenting love and grace towards his wayward nation Israel. And the same love and grace that's available to us today who have the same propensity to go wayward and running from God. Beautiful message. And this week, we get inside Jonah's heart and mind a little bit. We get to peer and see what's actually driving Jonah in all of this. Why did he run away? Why does he take such issue with Nineveh's renewal? And we join Jonah in this last scene under the unpredictable plant. And I want you to hear this. The book of Jonah is not about a whale. It is about a plant. A plant that God appoints for a single day that comes and goes. And it's there under that plant that we discover, discover that uh, Jonah, he doesn't want to live with grace. But Jonah doesn't want to live without grace either. It's a curious predicament. Why is it that grace is so difficult for Jonah to accept? Which makes us ask, why is it so difficult 
for us to accept grace too. That's the big idea this morning. So open your Bibles with me to Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 4. So remember, Jonah, he's just witnessed Nineveh's complete renewal, citywide repentance, God relenting from the disaster he had planned for Nineveh. So with that in mind, we read in chapter 4, verse 1, that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. If citywide renewal hit the streets of Vancouver, people repenting in the streets, people repenting in the halls of our government, uh, even the miniature dogs of Yale Town repenting, I think this would be cause for celebration. You know, what happened in Nineveh is party worthy. You know, load up the glitter cannons, get the t-shirt cannons. You know, we're going to party like it's 1999, but not for Jonah. To say that Jonah is angry is actually a little bit of an understatement. His anger is referred to four times in this passage. The way that things have unfolded in Nineveh are just wrong, so very wrong to Jonah. He's furious. His face is red. He's going to have a full-on, fully fully grown man channeling his inner five-year-old temper tantrum. Jonah is going to melt down. What's his deal? Why is he so upset about Nineveh? Look at verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord, this is Jonah's second prayer, and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. When Jonah prayed in the belly of the whale, as I mentioned, his prayer lacked any sign of confession or repentance. And in that prayer, he ends with a bang. He declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. The problem for Jonah is that God is the type of God who answers our prayers. And that prayer has now been answered in Nineveh. Salvation does belong to the Lord, and the Lord has brought salvation to Nineveh. But Jonah, he can't handle it. He melts down. This is the opposite of what he wanted. And in his second prayer here, he shows us that he was just saying all the right words before, but he didn't mean them. They were baseless. In fact, he would rather go back to the belly of the whale, back to the belly of Sheol, than live with Nineveh's renewal. Essentially, Jonah is saying that his deliverance from death was a mistake. His pseudo-piety is completely exposed. Jonah only headed to Nineveh because he had to. But we shouldn't be mistaken. Jonah didn't want to. It was begrudging obedience, and now it's all unraveling. And for the first time in his book, Jonah is honest and explicit about what was truly driving him. He fled from God's calling because of who God is. Jonah says, that is why I made haste to flee from, to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why I fled, because I know that that's the type of God you are. If I sang our national anthem, which I won't, but if I did, and I was singing the true north strong and free, O Canada, uh, from far and wide, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. And I just stopped there, sat down, ended the song. You would say, hold on a second, you're stopping short. And not only that, I'd be leaving out an important part of our national identity. 
God keep our land glorious and free. For any uh, ancient Jewish listener, all they would hear is what Jonah didn't say. They would say, wait a second, Jonah. Hold up. You left something out. You're quoting Exodus 34. But what about the part that says, God keeps loving kindness for thousands of generations who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Jonah, he ran from God's calling because he knew who God is. But Jonah still can't bring himself to fully admit who God is. He can't stomach the fact that God's graciousness towards Nineveh includes the forgiveness of their sins. He can't even say the words. The true truth is this. Jonah doesn't want to live with grace. Jonah doesn't want to live with grace. He doesn't want to live with God's grace being extended to Nineveh. He doesn't want that grace to include the forgiveness of the inexcusable. Because to Jonah, Nineveh is an inexcusable place. You know, it's evil, it's corrupt, murder in the streets, it's violent and oppressive, it's bloodthirsty, and don't forget, Lord, it's Gentile. So Jonah yells, therefore, kill me. Let me die. Before we get on our moral high horses about what Jonah is saying here, let's try to empathize with him. Grace, it's not an easy thing to accept. Think of uh, Javert in that play, Le Miserable. <laughs> That's what happens when I pretend to be cultured. Uh, but in all seriously, Le Mis, it can, it can help us understand Jonah. Uh, Javert, or Javert, the antagonist, he's a fascinating character, fascinating character. He's a fanatic police officer who dedicates much of his life to tracking down a criminal, Jean Valjean, or Jean Valjean. <laughs> Javert, he's a man of the law. He's a man of the rules. He's a man of justice. He, his greatest consistency is how he mercilessly obeys the law to the eye and the teeth. This is captured in a song he sings, Stars, where he sings, And so it must be, for so it is written on the doorway to paradise, that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Despite his best efforts, though, uh, Jean Valjean continues to evade Javert's uh, grasp. But then there's a turning point. While working undercover with the revolutionaries, Javert is exposed. And Jean Valjean, he takes Javert to execute him. But he does it away from everyone and he chooses to release him. And for everyone reading or watching the play, this is consistent with who Jean Valjean has become. But this experience rattles Javert. He can't wrap his mind around it. Why would Jean Valjean show him mercy when he had been so merciless towards him? Then they encounter each other again. And this time, Javert turns a, a, bla a blind eye. He walks away instead of arresting Jean Valjean, the man he dedicated his life to pursuing. And he can't live with the decision he made. He doesn't know how to reconcile the law with the mercy and the grace he shows to Valjean. And so he commits suicide. And his suicide song, it's totally gut-wrenching. Who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have caught me in a trap and choose to let me go free? Vengeance was his, and he gave me my, back my life. Damned if I'll live in the debt of a thief. 
I am the law and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There's nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. This is a person who cannot live with grace. But if you're thinking, no, I'm not like Jonah. No, I'm not like Javert. Uh, their reactions are to grace are too extreme. Let me ask you this. What about Nazi Germany? What if God forgave all the willing participants in the Reich? What about apartheid in South Africa? What if God forgave all of the oppressors? What about Boko Haram? What if God forgave all the violent men who kidnapped children for atrocious reasons? What if any of these groups in their entirety repented and God forgave them? How would you fare then? Many of us would respond like we do uh, to stories of serial killers having jailhouse conversions. We would question the authenticity of their repentance. Because we will do anything we can to find a way to say that they remain inexcusable before God. That's what's so offensive about grace. It's all about the inexcusable being forgiven. And when people or people groups that we think are unforgivable or forgiven, what do we say? I don't want to be in a heaven with people like that. I would rather an eternity in Sheol. And our response is very, it's very similar then to Jonah's. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah cannot live with grace. And so God asks Jonah a simple question. Verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond. He's silent. He, he's still unraveling. He goes backwards. He's back to the place where he won't even speak to God. And then we read in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah, he heads east. And this is literal, but it's not just geographical. In the scriptures, when someone heads east, it often symbolizes uh, uh, things going south, the way we would say. Things went south. They're falling apart. Jonah, we're supposed to gather from this, is running from God again. He's heading east again. East of Nineveh is an arid desert. And so Jonah, he crafts a makeshift booth to shelter himself from the heat. And we're also told that he's waiting to see what would happen to the city. This is a curious detail. This is Jonah's version of questioning the authenticity of Nineveh's repentance. He doesn't think, he, he doesn't think it's going to stick. It's Jonah saying, no, it can't be real. It won't last. And when it doesn't, God will bring judgment. Or it's Jonah say, seeing if his temp, temp, temper tantrum will cause God to change his mind. Either way, how God responds is just totally shocking and gracious. Look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Just as God appointed a storm when Jonah was on the ship, 
Just when God appointed a whale to save Jonah from death, just as God appointed that same whale to vomit Jonah on the shore, God now appoints a plant to grow. God sees Jonah's discomfort. He sees Jonah's exposure and vulnerability to the sun. He sees that the makeshift booth isn't cutting it, so he grows a plant to provide adequate shade. And we're told that Jonah was exceedingly glad, exceedingly glad because of the plant. His emotions turn. He swings from being exceedingly angry to now exceedingly glad. And this is the response he should have had towards Nineveh. Jonah is as glad about a little shade for his head as he was enraged about Nineveh's renewal. It's nonsensical. Why would God choose to increase Jonah's happiness, especially when Jonah is on the run again? Because God is up to something. The Hebrew in in verse 6 is actually pretty clever. God appointed the plant to save Jonah from his discomfort. Uh, It's a fair translation. That's what happened. Uh, But the word for discomfort is ra'ah, which is evil. This is the same word used to describe Nineveh's evil. And, And other Bibles can translate it as God saved Jonah from his evil. Which is... I think, fair to say, God is still teaching Jonah a lesson about what it means to pray salvation belongs to the Lord, and Jonah still has something to learn about that. God is providing for Jonah even in his rebellion. God is showing grace towards Jonah even in his unrepentant evil. The plant is a vivid picture of God's grace towards Jonah. And under the plant, Jonah, he finally cracks a smile. And this is where the story just gets really interesting. Look at verses 7 and 8. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Just as Jonah cracks a smile, God stops showing Jonah grace. God appoints a worm, a little worm, to take it all away. God removes Jonah's shade, yes, but he is really removing his grace. He gives Jonah over to the cost of his rebellion and his running, and now Jonah is exposed to the consequences of his decisions. He is left under the elements, under the sun, and in mere hours, his skin will burn. It will blister. Jonah will thirst and ache. And God even intensifies the heat. Just as God appointed a wind to disrupt Jonah's flight, we're told that he appoints an east wind to Jonah. He sends a, a, what the KJV, I love this, a scorcher, you know, a scorcher directly towards Jonah. God puts Jonah in the pressure cooker. And Jonah, he's now exposed to a graceless reality the very thing he wished upon Nineveh. And without grace, Jonah will die. And what does Jonah say? It's better for me to die than to live. So God asks him a second time in verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Jonah, he doesn't want to live with grace but he doesn't want to live without grace either. If living with grace means that Nineveh gets grace too, then Jonah wants death. 
So God gives him the alternative reality. God gives Jonah what he wished upon Nineveh. He gives him a graceless existence. But if Jonah has to live without grace, then he wants death as well because the reality is unbearable. He's in quite the predicament. He can see no other option than death. He just can't accept grace. Why is it so difficult for Jonah to accept grace? Why is it so difficult? For the same reasons that we can't accept grace. We don't think we really need it. We're mostly satisfied to say, you know what? I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I need forgiveness. And God, he'll forgive me. But if we get upset when God starts forgiving the people who have hurt us the most, the fathers who have left us, the spouses who have cheated, the people who took advantage of us, the ones who abused us and took pieces of our souls that can never be returned. If we get upset with God for forgiving people that we consider to be vile and corrupt, who are worse than us, it exposes something about ourselves. We're happy to admit that we need forgiveness, but we don't think that we need it desperately. We think we're pretty good. We think we somehow deserve to be forgiven because we're not that bad. We're just sort of bad. We don't need grace. We would like it. If we don't see that the inexcusable in other people's also resides in here, in us, then we don't really see ourselves as God sees us. If God forgives you, it's not because you deserve it or because you're pretty good and just made some mistakes. It's only because he chooses to show you grace. God does not have to forgive you. He is under no obligation to do so. You desperately need him to forgive you. Because any sin in your life or my life makes us inexcusable before God. And without grace like Jonah, we are exposed and helpless and heading towards death in permanent separation from God. But how are, we know, how are we to know then if we've truly received grace? How are we to know if it's taken root in our lives? Grace changes us. C.S. Lewis puts this simply. Uh, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Like Jean Valjean in Les Mis, we begin to extend grace to the inexcusable in others because we've received grace for the inexcusable in us, and it's changed us. And we desire other people to know that same grace. This is exactly what changed Valjean from a hardened criminal into a gracious man. After 19 years in prison, Valjean, he's released, and he can't find shelter anywhere, and he's sleeping on a bench, and a, and a bishop finds him and takes him into his house, and that bishop feeds him, and he gives him a bed for the night. But during the night, Valjean awakes, and he steals the bishop's silverware, silver plates, even his silver-plated clerical collar, and he leaves. Okay, the, no collar, but he's caught. He's arrested. He's brought back to the bishop. 
And in front of the police, the bishop rebukes Valjean. But not for the theft. He says, you forgot to take the candlesticks as well. All of these things were a gift to you, and you left this one behind. In this moment, Jean Valjean experienced grace. It changed him forever. If we can't relish in extending grace to others, it's because we haven't really been transformed by grace. Grace is just an idea, not an experience. And if grace remains an idea, it'll always be a backwards idea because grace is not fair. That's what makes it grace. And until we realize that there are inexcusable realities in our own souls that need forgiving by God. We will never come to rejoice in the inexcusable in others being forgiven as well. Jesus, he didn't die on the cross because he was a particularly nice chap. What happened wasn't a series of unfortunate events. The cross was his calling. That's why he came. Jesus did it because it was the only way that the inexcusable in us could be forgiven, that our sins could be forgiven. His death was of necessity. And he didn't do it when we had everything put together in its right place. He did it for us while we were broken messes. He did it for like people like Jonah who were on the run from God. He did it for prideful people who didn't even think they need it. But on the cross, our inexcusable realities are exposed for what they are but we're not condemned. Christ is. And there he utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is grace. We can't earn what Jesus did. We don't deserve it. We can only receive it, and it's free. It's offered. It's there for the taking. And it offends our senses. But if we connect with how desperately we need it, how desperately we need Jesus crucified for us, then we can't help but grasp at the grace he offers us and rejoice when others receive it too. Jonah, he still doesn't see that his evil is just as bad as Nineveh's evil. He doesn't truly understand that he needs grace to live just as Nineveh needs grace to live. But now in this place of blazing anger, God sees Jonah as primed to address the underlying issue in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God says to Jonah, you pity the plant, but you did nothing to gain it. It was a gift, it was my work, and now that you've lost it, you're furious and you're weeping because of it. In the same way, God asks Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? It's a great city. It carries far more significance than a temporary plant. And all of its residents, they don't know their right from their left. This is God's way of saying they are morally bankrupt and confused and lost. And let's not forget, Jonah, 
there's a lot of cattle. Now this, God was going somewhere, and then it just seems a little anticlimactic. (laughs) But throughout the book of Jonah, we're reminded over and over and over again that God is Lord over all of creation. The wind, the sea, the dry land, the great fish, the plant, the worm, the cattle, Nineveh, and even Jonah. Everything matters to God. God is concerned about seeing all of his creation restored to himself. And because of this desire, he takes pity on Nineveh. The word for pity is literally to have tears in one's eyes. God has tears in his eyes over Nineveh, the great city. When God sees Nineveh's brokenness, their moral confusion, their violence, their evil, it brings him to tears. And this isn't the only time that God has wept over a city. Luke writes in chapter 19, verse 41, that when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he wept over it. He wept because they were missing what was happening. He wept because they had run from God. But now the great city of Nineveh has responded to grace. It's a cause for rejoicing. A party erupts in the heavens. And God asks Jonah, Can't you weep with me for the renewal of great cities? Can't you rejoice with me when that renewal comes? Can't you celebrate over grace like you did under the plant? Will you accept your need for grace? Then the book ends. What about Jonah? Did he repent? Did he ever accept grace? The only indication that Jonah ever repented is the fact that we have the book of Jonah. Jonah writes a brutally honest book. He retells his story. He retells his experience of grace. He talks about running from God, going down to Sheol. He talks about wanting death over life with who God is. He tells the mess of his story, full of his shortcomings and brokenness. He doesn't gloss it up. He tells it as it was. But in doing so, he highlights God's grace towards him. The profound grace that met him in those places. The grace that didn't give up on him. The grace that pursued him and chased him and finally changed him. And by writing his book, Jonah is modeling something very important for us. Grace gives us the freedom to talk about our ugliness and our mistakes and our utter failures because we know that God has met us in these places. That he's forgiven the inexcusable in us. And we share our stories of experiencing grace with others because it's stories of grace that make grace the most concrete. That's what was so powerful about Danielle's story last Sunday. She told it as it was. And grace was beautiful. People don't need abstract ideas about grace. They need stories of how God's grace has met you how it's changed you. And part of how we join in the renewal of Vancouver is by bringing our stories of experiencing grace into the city. 
And in Jonah's story of grace, God is asking us, will you weep with me for the renewal of great cities? Will you rejoice with me when that renewal comes? Will you accept your need for grace? 